friends, many, many thanks for your presence. I am overjoyed to introduce my good friend, um, Dr. Kasparova. Now, here's the story with Dr. Kasparova. Um, Dr. Kasparova is, uh, has all of these wonderful academic bona fides. So she has a PhD in fine arts and theology, also has two master's degrees in Catholic theology, and she's the director of studies at the Faraday Institute of Science and Religion. And I'll send that link in the chat. And as you folks uh, who've been here before uh, will recall, um, this semester, uh, we're having many people from the Faraday because the folks at the Faraday Institute are a wonderful group of people and they, they befriended me. So when I was there last fall for, for Triennial, uh, many, many people at the Faraday greeted me and no one greeted me with more enthusiasm and friendship than Dr. Pavlina Kasparova. Hmm. So her area of interest is how fine arts intersect with theology and with science. Um, and so there are few people in the world who really do all three the way Pavlina does. Um, and so um, in addition to all of that, uh, Dr. Kasparova is a sister in the Dominican order and the Dominican congregation of the Czech Republic. So um, has regular ongoing <laughs> Hopefully you life again. with um, regular ongoing life with that congregation. And in fact, Pavlina, I think when you were in England, you often went back and forth between the two, you know, your life in England and your life uh, at, in, in the Czech Republic. All right, friends, um, most notably, oh, here comes, here comes someone new. Uh, so most notably, uh, in addition to an, being an intellectual powerhouse and a theologian of highest repute, uh, it was so generous spirited of her, the way she welcomed um, this wandering American uh, into Cambridge. And so I will stop there and turn it over to Dr. Kasparova. Pavlina, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us from England. Thank you, Ben, for inviting me. And yeah, it's really great joy to see many of you here. Um, ben asked me today if the session can be recorded. So uh, with hesitation, I agreed because you will hear that sometimes I struggle to express myself, not only because it's my second language uh, in which I will give this presentation, but it's also sometimes the ambiguity of the fact that art doesn't have a verbal language, to be honest. So talking uh, about art and spirituality might be tricky because we use expression means which hardly scratch the surface. 
but I will do my best and I hope uh, it will lead to some further conversations and and I would really would love your uh, your feedback and impact uh, and hear what you think about this topic. So the first thing actually about my about my research was that I created new methodology and it might be a bit more ambitious uh, than uh, when I say it like this, but it was, um, it came from a need, from a need of impossibility. And I will get to the point why it was impossibility which led to this new methodology. So firstly, uh, I realized when I started studying fine art and theology, that actually I can't exist because these two worlds uh, obviously exist a part of each other. They don't acknowledge each other. They don't like to be linked together or there is some feel of dominancy of one over the other. And then I realized that there is some kind of hostility between theology and fine art, probably coming from um, the modern era and the and the scholarship coming after and i really didn't question that before because i was raised born and raised in the catholic environment which was very friendly towards arts and i ne never needed to question the the impossibility of fine art in my religious life and in religious formation and then when i uh, when i came to the uk and i started my research then i realized that this highly reformed environment doesn't welcome the fine art the way I, I do or take for granted. And then I needed to question the fact of what's about the art which makes these people so angry. <laughs> so, uh, so I did this research into, uh, into the possibility putting both theology and fine art into the academic framework because doing research in something which is difficult to put into words, it's really an impossible task. So I said, okay, I'm going to take the best from both of the worlds and I'm going to create something new, which isn't here yet. And I took the methodology from fine art and put it into theological scholarship. Um, there were, there were some discussions uh, about whether that's correct or um, or a good way of doing research, but we also had the first question actually about what's research, what's the language, what's academia, what are the words we use? Because when we claim that words are actually the only or the most clear way of expressing ourselves, then I encountered the first problem. It's enough to come from a different geographical region and you find out that the question is, which academia, which environment sets this set of rules? And then it's enough to work within a different language. And then you say, which words? <laughs> because explaining something in words 
it was so difficult for me, not only because of grammar, but because the meaning of the words, the translation from one language to another is simply interpretation. And if you work in theology, which is itself interpretation, and in fine art, which as well uses interpretation as the very important part of its research, and it's not even your language, then you feel <laughs> really impossible existing within such environment. So, so then I actually needed to question my own biases. When I came here, this was a critique towards the environment, but I also had critique towards my own knowledge and towards my own formation. As Ben mentioned, I'm a member of the Catholic Church. So, and my theology came from the Catholic framework or Catholic um, background. And when I was, I think the second year student, um, we had study, a study skill session. And then the lecturer said, and now we are going to work with a text of one of the best theologians in the world or in the UK, Rowan Williams. And my first thought was, how come he can be one of the best theologians when he's not Catholic? <laughs> you know, that's, that, that was the first thought, the very first thought. And I was sitting there trying to listen uh, to the session and also observing my own thoughts because then I was thinking, huh, do you know or have you noticed what you've just been thinking? <laughs> and it is a bias because as I was formed and taught at my university, you can't build a good piece of theology on something which is incorrect, right? So how can he can create a good piece of theology if he must be incorrect if he's not Catholic? <laughs> <laughs> and I was I was observing myself thinking about all these all these uh, questions, and also approaching the the knowledge that if I'm going to surround myself with this kind of thinking and feeling free to use different sorts of theology in my own theological research, I will be questioned in my own environment, which is the Catholic one. And it was quite an existential question, to be honest, because it means that if I don't have a degree from a Catholic university or Catholic theology, I can't teach at universities or departments which are based in the Catholic environment only because it's not the approved kind of theology I'm using. So it really became an existential question for me, whether I'm going to do theology, which is not predominantly Catholic, whether I'm going to use a methodology, which has very little or next to none existence in, in the research in theology, or also what's my career going to be if I'm a female theologian within the Catholic Church. Because I'm not an ordinant, I will never be. It's not allowed. So all these questions actually merge into very existential tension for me. And then I, I think it led also to some kind of feeling that I surrendered and, and gave in and decided to follow the best what's, what's possible and do something which nobody else did before, or at least I haven't found before. 
And in the academia world or in the doctoral kind of study, it's the best way because you have to claim new knowledge at the end. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'm going to submit this methodology as part of new knowledge because obviously that's very new and there will be questions and there were a lot of questions, there still are. And maybe someday it will sound like a very normal kind of proceeding our knowledge. I would like to show you some of my some of my research. Hopefully you can see it. Uh, do you see the full screen on my display setting? Okay, great. So this is me sitting next to one of my artworks during an exhibition because a part of my research was actually submitting visual material. And the visual material is something which I'm using as a substantial part of my data collection. And as I said, again, it's difficult to work with this kind of material because you really don't know what to look for. And therefore, that I, I submitted a methodology because I felt like the most important thing for us is to create something which somebody else can replicate. <laughs> yeah. So this is a methodology cycle which I created. It was fusing of two um, methods. One of them was theological reflection and the second one was practice-based research. So art practice together with theological reflection. And as I said, I took pieces from both of my disciplines that time and created this uh, plan for, for assessing the thinking process. And then you can see it when I put the artwork in. And I submitted 12 art projects uh, over the period of four and a half years when I did my research. And you can see the thinking process here when, I, when I'm showing where these uh, brackets before, as I showed before, sorry. Mm. Yeah, here, uh, when I just put these brackets, but how they look when I fill them with the artwork. So it wasn't only the artwork in an assessment way, but it was also the practice, as I said. So the whole process of thinking about art and how I create art is part of the data set. And you can see here that the numbers or the, the circles, including some artworks, are connected and some of them influence the others. And they also show how I clarified some thoughts or how they led to some other pieces of work because they needed to address something specific in my research. Sometimes I worked with a very defined plan, but very often uh, I followed quite, um, I would say emotionally or maybe just by feeling the lead which I found in my artwork. And I couldn't say exactly what the part is. And that's what I do in my second research. I can talk about at the end when I'm putting psychology, the science in it, but it's not this research yet. And you also see how I 
work with the assessment of the artworks when I when I needed to create theology because uh, there was a very good uh, question from one of my supervisors when I was uh, in the at the end of my first stage of study and she said oh it all looks very nice but you have to submit a solid piece of theology and so I I honed my ideas um, together and I said, okay, so where's the theology here? Where's the process? Where's the way of thinking? And I was simply finding the lines of my thinking within my art process. So it's very much of self-observation and reflection on the art, uh, on the, of the art process. Also, I realized that there are few main themes, which was the Christology, theme of Christology, theme of void, which I just felt that this is a void, something missing, and theme of identity. Then it was also connected with theme of activism, connected with responsibility and discernment, and also a theme of dialogue. Because firstly, when I created the when I created uh, my artwork, I was asking myself, what is the art for in theology? And then I found some resources in, uh, in the Catholic teaching, in Reform teaching. And the final end of it is human development and redemption. And the human development for me was very well embodied in the theme of Christology. So I realized that the theme of body itself is very important for me and for my research. And then you, when you find out the main theme, you also see how the theme shows why you chose pieces as you did, uh, what you are addressing by these themes and how they sit within the theology and within your own vocation. And I was actually creating the, firstly it was the research question because my research question, original research question was called the use of light installations in contemporary ecclesiastical art. It was very different from what I submitted because what I submitted was art as a living theology, exploring artists' vocation. And I needed to, I needed to justify this shift. And the, and the shift was that uh, when, I started, when I started working or when I started my research, I knew what I want to do. When I was almost at the end, I had no idea because <laughs> the topic was become wider and wider and wider and I was still digging deeper into something. And, and then some, some um, of my supervisors again asked me, how many theses do you want to write? You have to decide for one topic because we are, you are not having enough time to address all these things. And therefore I said, okay, I'm going to really, I'm going to address who are the artists for the church? Because if there is an artist and there is um, the ability of create, then there has to be Christ in which image we were created and this Christ have to have identity of artists. So what's the identity of artists within Christology? 
And this was my main question throughout the whole research. And now this is one of my artworks, um, which you could see before, and it was called Tree of Life. And you also notice that I, I was addressing the theme of responsibility, activism, and, uh, and discernment. And I was recreating the part, uh, this part of probably a theme of crucifixion. I'm saying probably because when you look at it, it's actually not crucifixion because it's a body. It's some of images of nature. And there is just some kind of posture. But if you are trained or formed in Christian theology, it will remind you crucifixion. And that's something which I call theological suggestion. So we can actually share with people who are not formed theologically or religiously or don't know too much about Christianity because they weren't exposed to these images. And they will probably not read this image as crucifixion. But if you are a Christian and you are exposed to these religious images, you will recognize some symbols and they will mean something for you. But I wanted to make this artwork for a dialogue about sustainability and ecology, because this is a theme which we share with everyone in the world. And it was my, actual, my main purpose for this piece was to create a dialogue, um, a platform for, for, for dialogue with everyone. So you don't, you don't need to be religiously formed to talk about something which is important, which connects everyone. And there's something which connects everyone is the responsibility for our world. Uh, also, I worked with a different kind of media and it was a very specific phenomenon. If you come to Cambridge, you will notice that Cambridge is a city of lost gloves. You will see them everywhere. When you walk on the street, on the pavement, you will see them on um, the fences, just lying on the pavements, or people will sometimes arrange them somewhere because there is probably the hope that somebody will find their lost glove and will return for that. And it was such a fascinating thing for me. So when I came here the first year, I started taking photo of them. And I think within two years, I have over 170 images. And then I stopped because my phone was full of just pictures of gloves. And you have only such, you know, such storage in your phones. And so I decided I, it, I, it has to stop. I can't collect any more gloves on uh, into my phone. And then uh, I entered um, a competition for sustainability art prize. And I offered this artwork as well, which was called Gloves Adoption. And the whole idea behind this was, you know, these poor gloves, they were lost. They tried to make their work up in this cruel world, but please let them, let them adopt. So come to this exhibition, adopt a glove. And I created all the idea that there will be the, the whole paperwork. When you come there, you can really 
uh, adopt a piece of glove and <laughs> or the pair because there are only just one glove um, from the pair and but you have to you have to commit so you would have to sign a paperwork the adoption paperwork you would have to provide your background you have to agree with follow-up visits sending records on uh, how the glove is doing and so on so it was the whole thing about responsibility and sustainability which was my main topic that time and then COVID hit so no exhibition of such no people meeting and then I turned it into an online exhibition um, and I created this very kitschy kind of campaign which I call, called really fake campaign and I made these like 10 cards saying a story of lost gloves so I will show you now you can read the story um, and see the images uh, I will read it for the podcast. Um, okay. Handlessness may affect anyone. Does not ask about age or about the future. It changes one's character, turns lives upside down and demolishes appearance. It doesn't care about the past, social status or previous accomplishments. These gloves are in danger of pathological behavior and trafficking. They experience loneliness, anxieties, illnesses, and loss of dignity. They do not have access to many benefits which others take for granted. Monitoring the situation showed that from 2017 to 2020, no significant change occurred. Hundreds of gloves exist on the Cambridge streets without being paid attention. Let's be attentive, empathic, and responsive to the situation around us. Adopt lost gloves and give them hands and the care which they need. So it was like a very <laughs> uh, emotion story, emotional story, which should be some somehow funny as well. You know, it was it was a joke in some way, but it had also the other part. So if you were there to enjoy the exhibition. You would just amuse yourself. But the other part of the exhibition or, or the project as I as I then worked with uh, with it within my whole research was that when I was collecting these gloves, they were pretty disgusting. As you could see, some of them were really bad. And I collected some of them, I washed them um, many times, I mended them, prepared for the for the adoption. And my own experience was that I really hated having them at home because for me, they were still dirty. I still remembered how they smelled, where I found them. And it led me to ask in a question, can people restore dignity once it was lost? And if you change the word, from gloves to people, we really sometimes get used to people on the streets. We don't pay attention. We try not to think about them too much as people, but rather as objects just appearing on the streets because we feel very badly otherwise. And 
that's how this project actually made it into my whole discernment uh, framework within my research and thinking about theology and art and spirituality and how they merge together and how they can actually um, work as metaphors or symbols of something different. And because we work with these symbols or, and metaphors, we can push the idea further. Because when you start with something which is stated from the beginning, the, the usual reaction is that you, that you resist. You already have prepared mechanisms to resist. When you think about social injustices, we simply have coping mechanisms and we, we shut down. When we think about some theological, theological problems or differences, uh, for example, um, an image within, uh, within the church or artwork within the church, you shut down because if your tradition is not to use them or you are, you are taught that you can't actually use them because they are dangerous, you will immediately shut down. So for me, the thing was, how can I sneak the idea in? How can I show you without telling too much? And firstly, I wanted to create something which we can see together and then base the language on what we've seen, what we've experienced. And the main purpose was to use this ambiguity as the main advantage because I sometimes found that uh, I sometimes found words being very limited and we simply can't get anywhere anymore in our dialogues and in our discussions about about topics which can be sensitive or don't make us feel happy <clears throat> and then we simply turn into something which we learned to do all the time. So, so this was really to deconstruct our mechanisms to, to start talking in a different way about what we've seen and experienced. Okay, so this was my main project. My second project, which I'm working on right now is um, using psychology to move this technique or this method further and to really track the processes, the thinking processes about art, about idea developments, um, influences, uh, histories, personal spirituality, how it affects um, the development of our perceptions on some specific topics. In my case, it's I'm going to talk about the topic divine and faith. So how we actually see these things. And I'm going to work with visual artists who are very attentive to these processes, uh, to these visual images, inner, inner images. And now I'm going to apply the methodology from psychology. Um, it's a bit beyond my, uh, my training and therefore I work with a psychology mentor and it's a very unique project uh, run by Birmingham University. 
if you are interested, they are just starting a second run. So if you are interesting, interested, I can give you the link because they are now op opening call for theologians who want to work uh, with psychologists as well. So I would very much recommend that. Please wish me luck with this project because it's something quite new, but I love doing new things, obviously. <laughs> and yeah, I'm not afraid anymore uh, trying trying uh, and experimenting because I think that's how academia should work. Uh, also, I'm not afraid anymore that I will not fit within my Catholic formation and Catholic academia. Um, it might affect me in the future, but I think I would rather be free <laughs> than, than uh, subscribe to something which I find limiting at this point. And I hope to enrich others and to show them and show them that we can do things differently. Yeah, that's all from me. Thank you. Great. Dr. Kasparova. I personally have a lot of questions um, and uh, I can I ask, I have a question, but I really want to open it up to other people's questions. Does anybody have a burning question uh, that that you want to ask um, our expert here? And if if no one shouts out, I'm going to ask my question. <laughs> well, I, I kind of had one. All right, go for it. Dr. Duffy's a program director and an MDiv. He's an MD MDiv. Yeah, not too many. Good. Um, I was struck by what you said initially about that tension between kind of um, the theological and the artistic. And I was just wondering, because kind of the, the Christian message oftentimes is very concrete in what it, it reveals, what it states. Um, is the degree of kind of the abstractness of the art, is that have the potential to create some of that tension in that when something becomes too abstract, kind of the, the Christian side of things may sometimes not be able to relate to what it is actually trying to portray or to say? Yeah, um, I think the main problem within the whole conflict was that uh, or do you mean actually the tension between Christian denominations uh, perceiving the art or yeah or, or accepting it if that they accepting, might be a yeah. little bit reluctant to accept yeah, it because yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. it's too abstract and it doesn't maybe become clear enough as to what it's trying to say yeah. or to state. Yeah, there is. That's a good point because uh, the first um, some of the first requirements for art stated uh, for. But religious art, I don't believe in the, in the connection of the words religious and art like one label, because I think art can be religious when it's used for religious purposes and it still doesn't need to show anything religious. Uh, but it's a different story. So the first thing is that it should be truthful. It should be good and it should be used for good purpose. And so the truthful, truthful thing is that we very often thought about the truthfulness as figurative and that's the main problem 
because then it says you know, only figurative art can be truthful because it, it shows the world as it is. It never shows the world as it is. A photography doesn't show the world as it is. Otherwise, it wouldn't be art. Uh, how you actually perceive world is a very personal information. It's, I have no idea how you perceive images which you see. I only know how I see something and then the artwork actually should do something else. It shouldn't just copy the perception. Uh, but the, the other thing is that the purpose of the art is different. So what's actually the purpose? Should it illustrate some stories or should it lead to devotional um, affection or should it just be to please your um, life you know or for like the, the light purpose because it's the aesthetic aesthetics of of art it's just really to please us uh, to be honest and actually the aesthetic part isn't so much important and then there comes <laughs> Walter Stoff, who, who is from the reform tradition, and he says, art is good when it does what is done for. <laughs> so, so you firstly have to find out what this piece of art was made for. And if it was to illustrate Bible, and it illustrates the story, then it's a good piece of art. You can say it's naive, it's not good artistically, but it does what it was supposed to do. Like the Biblia Paupera, it was about to show biblical stories to people who didn't have the ability to read. But the abstract art actually was one way out <laughs> for the traditions uh, which came from reformed theology, that finally we don't have to deal with the image, the person showing God in a person shape. And then it was a way out, but it's not the only purpose. So how what what's the most important was and it again it came from the reform tradition was how actually we should deal with the fact that we have artists within our congregations how come they can be artists if art is not allowed can we talk about it as sinful because it misleads people so are these artists sinners in the first instance we can't think of them that way because then probably there is something wrong so what's actually what's going on here and there was that, that was the my that was my question about if there is a person created in the image of christ there must be christ who is the artist the act uh, the the creator but not only creator but also the artist so the art for the artist is a way of reflection, meditation, and living. And that's why I call it art as a living theology. You think through art. Do you, have you ever experienced the flow, something people call flow, when your abilities and interests actually um, align, and then you feel the flow. When you work on something and you are in the flow. For artists, it works the same. So you actually get into, into a stage where your skills can follow your thoughts and then you are able to create something which never existed before. In that moment, you can say that you are actually joining your creator in creating. You are following, it's a way of spirituality. It's not a sin, it's a way of understanding God.
and understanding yourself as creation of God. So it was a big, really roundabout around the whole problem with art within the Reformed churches, because we actually don't need to think about worshipping art, because there is no worshipping of art, but we can think about making art as an individual spirituality. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. Other other thoughts, questions? All right. I got a question. So it strikes me that art is a language that seeks to that art is a language that explores mystery and that in order to explore mystery one must have imagination and i don't think in our churches or synagogues or mosques i don't think we do imagination and mystery well i think this is what maybe dr duffy was talking about you know this idea of like religion is you know theologians are serious people and come up with syllogisms and rules and a line of logic to discern you know truth right now so i guess my question is the, how do we build a bridge between the mystery and imagination of who god is because ultimately god is mystery and and the uh you know, lived experience of our lives as faithful people uh, in community. When I will use your trick you used here in Friday, and I will say, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I can try to say something <laughs> about it and um yeah there's a good thinking and i think also it's part of research in psychology and perception and neuroscience about and also theology about inspiration mm. and from where some sort of ideas come and it very much depends on your position then we have to be very careful from which position we talk because each position has already created rules for what inspiration is and how it works it's not allowed to use the same language or to apply the same rules to the other discipline it was my main experience when I did my interdisciplinary research that sometimes I used words which I was very sure about in my own language department. <laughs> For example, a word talent or gift. And then I really clashed badly with the artists because then there is obviously a whole theory of a gift, what gift is. And simply I applied my theological understanding on it. Like, mm. Mm, which is a grace given for free. Understanding very, very much based on Aquinas. Mm. 
but there is I didn't know that there is the whole scholarship of gift so I I actually needed to take it away from my thesis uh, because we were getting nowhere with the artists I had both artists and theologians on in my advisory team and we very often found areas where we were not able to proceed because I had so many comments on some parts of my thesis that I decided that I'm going to take it away from it because we would we wouldn't get anywhere. Mm. And I think the whole word imagination would would fall very easily into this category. What imagination is because is imagination touching mystery? Should we even approach mystery with knowledge? Should mystery and knowledge be mixed together? Mm. For me, uh, the mystery is something hidden and we also have hierarchy of mystery, which is something revealed theology, you know, re, re, yeah, which is the, uh, which is the highest knowledge, like inspired, uh, inspired um, teaching like the Bible, for example, and or yeah, or even Quran and other other scriptures. But also there are, there is shared knowledge or traditions which are based on something which was believed within a community. So I think that we can understand mystery without revealing it. And you use imagination every day. If you wouldn't, you would wake up and you would think what this funny thing, the funny thing in your bathroom with the fluffy end is for. You know, you wouldn't know that it's your toothbrush because if you didn't have enough imagination, you would simply forget every day. So your imagination creates knowledge and you know what to do with the things. Um, but it's a it's a quite a poor example, <laughs> to be honest. But but then you accept it. You accept it. It's for that. But you, then your imagination say, "Oh, why not to use this funny thing with the with the fluffy end for something else? Like we can clean like our dishes. It's the same tool. It's only in different size. So your imagination leads you. If I can clean this, I can clean that. And then you can create the whole um, auto washer. <laughs> and this is how our imagination works. So we, we learn something small and we learn to apply it. And I think that the main thing in this, uh, in this imagination trick is community. Because in community, you can share the knowledge, you can broaden it, you can um, understand how others use it. And that's why I think that having artists within your community is very important, like having, having doctors within your community, because they understand things which we don't even question, you know? Uh, but also, have you ever experienced that somebody asked you a question on something you, you knew that you know from top down? And then it's like, huh, I've never thought about it this way. And that's I, why I think that we were created as a community, a human community. And not only, also the, the rest of the world very much plays their role in it. 
So I think we are revealing the mystery together and the imagination is still developing. We probably lost some parts of it uh, in the past, but I believe we can, uh, we can create something new or recover something new. We can see it now with the AI. Uh, on set, we, we can't imagine how far it can go, but there was somebody who imagined how to put it in work, as well as Michael Faraday was able to put his own imagination into what electricity can do for us because he didn't actually discover electricity. He just made it to do something. <laughs> so, so I think we are collaborating together and we built on others' knowledge and imagination and we are maybe touching the mystery, but if the mystery should be God, you will not know that. <laughs> there is no way of approaching this fully. Well. You know, it makes me wonder, we might not understand mystery, but we know mystery when we see it. And it, it makes me, I, I wonder if, you know, the, hearing what you're saying makes me realize that liturgy is the container of mystery, especially in these grand high church traditions, right? Like there are certain steps, but then at the end, of this or at the at the crescendo of it there's the the transubstantiation of the eucharist right like this mystical mysterious moment um and so i, I just, that's really thoughtful pavlina it makes me your thoughts make me wonder about that that and it also makes me wonder that religion is probably more artistic and imaginative than we give it credit for you know, we sing, mm -hmm. we, we are in a beautiful setting, usually uh, some, you know, a, a synagogue, church, mosque, they usually are architecturally pleasing, right? We sing, They're, the the chanting of prayers is a rhythmic musical piece. Um, so it makes me wonder, I don't know, we don't often frame religion as being imaginative and artistic, but it probably is more so than we think of it as as imaginative and creative anyway other other thoughts questions yeah um father lawrence calling from yale new heaven hospital hooray yeah yeah i, I want to thank sister for this wonderful presentation uh, i want to point out that i like the idea of the question you asked between mystery and theology and the midway being imagination. But I would like us to see from this point of view that this imagination has, has created a lot of problem in the way religion is wrong or goes. Because when we talk about imagination, there's the possibility that we're talking about Um, relativity, we are talking about uh, contextuality, and um, all these have affected the way we see and understand religion in the world today. For example, visual arts has presented angels as white people and devil as black, in, in black color. And these have for so many years, centuries affected the way 
people interact with religion from their African background. So um, uh, it is, it's time visual arts begin to understand their perception of this mystery is not, is, is, uh, is relative. It, it cannot be, it, and it should be changed and not given a, a dogmatic uh, uh, interpretation or as some people feel marginalized in the way religion is being understood today. So the point I'm trying to make is that visual arts has a lot to do in the aspect of relative mystery and theology because visual arts comes with relativism. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I strongly agree with that. And I think uh, it doesn't, it's not only for this, for this reason uh, or for this only injustice what religion was a part of. But I think that's exactly the way what visual arts can play important role in, because as I said, you can sneak in ideas before we even start talking and before we try to resist because we some we learned some, some mechanisms already. So, and I would invite artists from any kind of background to to use art as language because we need to show things which have been neglected uh, and we don't need to we don't need to ask sometimes permission i would say in art art is more free language than uh, in theology we are much more careful about the use of language but the artists that's actually one of the part of the of the clashes Art was so often or for so long used as a tool for religious propaganda that it felt it needs to uh, be freed. And that's what happened during, um, during modernism. It was freed from academia and from religious uh, domination and it claimed its own uh, independence. So we can call modernism uh, period of art independence. But the question is whether the resistance is too angry because it says we want to have nothing with you anymore. And the, the words like religion, faith, divine, transcendent, and so on are so badly misunderstood uh, and you can't even use them in uh, art scholarship because people are absolutely uh, oversensitive to, to its use because they say they are so uh, religiously based or theologically based that we can't use them for something just nothing to do with theology. Hmm. Friends, so this, yeah. sorry, go ahead. No worries, that's it. <laughs> Okay, because we are at the top of the hour. And so, uh, Dr. Kasparova, you have given us much to think about. Uh, art, imagination, mystery, theology, community. Ay, 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 so much. Um, friends, 
our next um, talk is on March 7th. And it's a, a, it's a Nash, internationally recognized podcaster uh, named Maxi, based in Germany. Uh, and it is um, uh, focuses on the inner life. Um, so March 7th at noon Eastern Standard Time. So mark it in your calendar and get ready for that. And, and Pavlina, thank you so very, very, very much. Know that you've made many, many friends in New Haven. And uh, we look forward to seeing you in person whenever that will be. All right, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Peace out, everyone. Thank you.